Welcome to episode 62 of Yukon 360. That is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut because we are working remotely in this age of the pandemic. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hey, how's it going? And Ken Best. I think I've overcome my technical problems today. Thank you. <laughs> It's a, you know, it's a, it's always a good day. Every day you learn something new. That's a good rule for life in general. You're like, turn up the sound knob when you're supposed to. Oh my <laughs> goodness. You'd think after all these years, I'd know how to do that. You would think. You know, when Maxine uh, Philavong left, we all just fell apart. That's, <laughs> it's that's so true. That's true. It's <laughs> an accurate assessment. So we have an excellent program for you this week, as we always do, I like to say. Thanks, everyone, who's been listening and, and been writing us and, and uh, tweeting us online. It's been very helpful. Things are starting, I wouldn't say return to normal, but things are starting to gear up at the University of Connecticut. You may or may not know that we are planning to come back in the fall in a semi-attenuated form. The details aren't final yet, but there will be fewer people on our campuses, but there will be classes happening and there will be research happening and there will be performances or at least performance classes happening. So as we learn more, we'll bring that to you. What else is going on in the world of UConn, Julie? You you said you had some exciting things that you wanted to note. I just wanted to point everybody to UConn today, not a shameless plug, but there's a lot of really cool research going on. We, we have been continuing research. There was a stop for a little while, but there's a pharmacy professor who, along with a professor of chemistry, recently published a paper in Nature Cell Biology that they found a commonly used chemotherapy drug could be repurposed as a treatment for resurgent or chemotherapy-resistant leukemia. There's a lot of really cool research going on with COVID. There's Paolo Verardi, who is on a team that's trying to find a vaccine, along with collaborators from across the globe. So I just think it's awesome to look through some of that work that's going on and check it out at UConn today. Yeah, uh, there's also a a cool story going up uh, as we speak that talks about uh, some faculty members at the UConn School of Dental Medicine found like a, a common mouthwash mixture kills the uh, COVID germs. So it's a way for dentists and dental hygienists to be more safe because they are very much at risk working in people's mouths the whole time. Even more so than, uh, you know, face shields and stuff. Just have patients swish with this before you get going and uh, you'll you'll be uh, you'll be all right. I'm sure the story will get into a little more detail there. I mean, just a little bit, but it, the story is more dumbed down, not quite as high level as what I just said. So it's... <laughs> there for the lay audience. Ken. I have a news item that was actually posted on UConn today. Uh, Maria Oliveira, who is the president of the Student Government Association at the Stanford campus of UConn, uh, was selected as just one of 20 students in the country to be a public service scholar by Phi Beta Kappa Society, which is the uh, most prestigious academic honor society in the United States. Phi Beta Kappa recognizes students uh, who are interested in working in the public sector and possess strong academic records in the arts, humanities, mathematics, natural sciences, and social sciences. She is a mathematics and history major, so she qualifies on that score, but she's also been very involved in many other things, including uh, being a Babbage Scholar and winning Outstanding Achievement Awards in Mathematics and in Chemistry as well. So she gets a stipend uh, for her senior year. And she is very happy to do that. She wants to 
go to school to become a lawyer after she finishes her undergraduate work and then work for the State Department. Congratulations. Very nice. Very cool story. Speaking of cool stories, Ken, what do you have for us this week? I think I have a very interesting story this week. Siavis Sami is a zooarchaeologist who earned his Ph.D. at UConn just this past year. He's completing his postdoctoral work as a fellow in the Yukon Humanities Institute. Uh, he studies the remains of animals at archaeological sites. He and his colleague Karim Alzada at Grand Valley State in Michigan traveled to part of historic Mesopotamia, which is in Western Asia, that is considered part of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization. That region corresponds today to what is now Kuwait, the eastern parts of Syria, southeastern Turkey, and regions along the Turkish, Syrian, and Iraq-Iran border, which is, of course, in the Middle East. Uh, Sami focuses research in an area near the northwest corner of Iran, known as the Kona Shahar, which is part of historic Kura Araxis cultural settlements, where animal bone and antlers were used to make tools. It's one of the largest archaeological sites from the Bronze Age, which is when cities and states were growing, social orders were changing, and the manufacturing of goods and economic trade began, including textiles and objects made from animal horns. This is about 6,000 years ago, from roughly 3,500 to 2,200 BCE. I spoke with Siavisami about his research into what I think is a very important time of history. We are fascinated by Mesopotamian cities and states, and our history has essentially become a history of urbanization. The problem is with that, though, is that in the Middle East, cities emerged in two very specific and small places, in the Nile River Delta, essentially in present-day Egypt, and in Mesopotamia, which is southern uh, Iraq, around 4,000 BCE, so about 6,000 years ago. At that time, most of the Middle East was mountainous. It goes all the way from eastern Iran through much of Iran into the southern Caucasus, which is present-day Armenia, Azerbaijan, into Anatolia and Turkey, into Jordan, uh, Syria, and Israel. These are mountainous areas and highland zones, and there were no cities and states at the time. But because we're so fascinated by these urban story, we forget what life was like in these uh, highland areas and these mountainous societies at the, at the same time as when the urban revolution was unraveling in Mesopotamia and in, and in ancient Egypt. I'm interested in studying what life was like in these mountainous societies. And one of the most important of these archaeological cultures is called the Kura Araxes cultural tradition. It's an early Bronze Age culture roughly from about 3500 BCE to about 2200 BCE, around the same time as when the first cities and states were really growing. It's, it's a unique uh, archaeological culture. We talk about the Bronze Age. People know what that is, but they don't really remember exactly sure. what that means. In the timeline of civilized organization and development, how do you explain that to people as to what, why is the Bronze Age so important to the way that we are today. Sure. So we begin with the Paleolithic period when we have the first hunter-gatherers moving around the landscape, hunting animals and collecting wild plants. And then we get the Neolithic period. That's when the beginning of agriculture, the first farming villages and the evidence of the first domestication of animals, essentially. After that, we have these two periods called the Chalcolithic, which is a Copper Age, and then the Bronze Age. 
The Bronze Age is very important because that's the beginning of what we call social complexity. When we get these first cities, we get these first states, there's the beginning of evidence of social stratification. So for the first time, we have uh, people who fall into very strict socioeconomic classes. We have the emergence of specialized division of labor. So certain people are specializing in certain tasks. Some are craft producers, some are farmers, some are herders, others are bureaucrats. And at the same time, we get more or less the first evidence of very organized, well-managed, long-distance exchange network. For example, Mesopotamia, which is, again, in present-day Iraq, where these first cities emerge, it has nothing. It has land for farming, and it has some pastures for grazing, but it has nothing else. So these cities are very much dependent upon these mountainous societies and these mountainous areas that I'm interested in because that's where the wood is. That's where the precious stones are. That's where the metals are. So these, uh, these very elaborate networks of uh, long-distance exchange and trade in the Bronze Age, it is in a way the beginning of the age of globalization in a manner of speaking. As you described that, it is the forerunner of today's modern world where everything affects everything else. Absolutely, in a way, completely. The problem is how we analyze that. We analyze it from a very urban-centric perspective. What I mean by that is that we say we have these cities in these very small, very limited places. They have certain needs. Uh, and so in order to satisfy those needs, let's say they need access to wood, uh, the elites, uh, the, the so-called 1% of these societies need access to these precious stones and precious metals that are only found in the highlands. So we see these cities create these colonies in the mountains to... Uh, extract and import these precious stones and, and, and wood. But we don't look at this story from the perspective of the mountains themselves. What, do, what are these communities like? What is life like in these vast expanses of the highlands? Most importantly, being on the ground in that part of the world is necessary, and you're, you're finding remains of materials, of the early tools that were created from bones and antlers, which is part of the evolution of handcrafted tools and the ability to advance manufacturing and trade and economics, as, as you made reference to earlier. What did you observe or find that was new and leads to a better understanding of, of that time of human development and its effect on where we are today? That's actually a great question. Uh, part of the problem with, the, with this urban-centric narrative that we have is that we tend to cluster these ancient societies that live in the mountains into these very simplistic categories. So we call them uh, simple, undifferentiated, egalitarian. Oftentimes we, we compare them to uh, the kind of simple societies that we saw in very deep prehistory. And that's simply not true. We, these are very complex, very sophisticated societies. My job has been to use the kind of archaeological data we find from these, from these mountains to study these societies on their own terms. So my interest is zooarchaeology, is a study of animal remains from archaeological sites. I've been working at one of these sites. It's called the site of Kohne Shahar in northwestern Iran. The name of the site literally means old town. And this site was occupied between 5,000 and 4,000 years ago. And it falls into the same early Bronze Age culture I told you about. It's a big uh, settlement. It's about 15 hectares. It has three parts. It has a fortified settlement that's very densely occupied. And then we have another outer town that's uh, it's more sparsely occupied. It's outside of the fortification wall of the main town. And then there's a cemetery. 
We did excavations inside the fortified settlement. And what we found are these very large, very elaborate uh, craft production areas. This was essentially an industrial town. And as we were excavating, one of the fascinating things we find was the wide range of bone tools and antler tools that these locals were actually forming and shaping. And then they were using these bone antler tools to make other things. They were manufacturing beads. They were engaging in metallurgy. They were making pottery. And the type of data that we were recovering suggests that they're mostly making small probably ornamental objects. And then they're probably exporting them to other places around in the region. The evidence of the animal bones, what it suggests is that this was not a simple society. This was not a an egalitarian society. This was not an undifferentiated society. People are specializing in very specific tasks. So the settlement itself is divided into neighborhoods. And in one of the neighborhoods, they're actually using antler tools to make textiles. And they're probably making these very small, elaborate objects that, that maybe uh, consist of both pieces of fabric that are made of sheep wool, but also then uh, you add some beads to it to make it into something, something ornamental, something that we actually see among modern-day nomadic pastoralists the kind of handicraft that they make today. So it's kind of textile manufacturing. It's textile manufacturing. In another part of the settlement, people are making beads. We have both worked and unworked pieces of soapstone that are shaped into these very small uh, and beautiful beads. Another neighborhood in this uh, settlement, they're making objects out of the horn of cattle. Why do we know that? Because there's actually large deposits of horn core of cattle. Cattle inside the horn are these bony cores. And we we find these bony cores in archaeological sites. And we have these big cut marks around the base, which suggests they're actually cutting these and removing that sheath that we see on horns and then then making other objects with that. So this provides some insight into the development of tools and how they were used back then, leading to other things that came down further down the line because, as you said, you're, you're looking at, at animal remains and trying to determine what they were, where yeah. they were. And then, as was always the case in the farming community and isolated communities, every piece of an animal was used in some way, whether for food Absolutely. or for construction or for, in this case, bone shaped into a tool. Exactly. And and what's neat here is that we do not have evidence of palaces like we see in cities. There is no evidence of social stratification and the socioeconomic classes, the 1% and the 99% like we see in cities. But what we do see is a very elaborate, very sophisticated and and complex system uh, of specialization in the production of certain objects. Different households, different individuals specialize in making those objects, and then they trade them with one another, and they exchange them with one another. This kind of an elaborate system requires thought, requires uh, well, uh, careful management, and and that's just the production end of it. Then, b- because this is an industrial town, uh, we believe that they're, in fact, taking whatever they are producing and, and trading them and exchanging them with other people and other sites and other settlements on the, uh, in the Middle East. That trade also requires management, also requires uh, maintenance. Uh, so very much uh, unlike what we think, these societies are not simplistic. They are not simple. They actually are very well-developed, and they're quite complex. One of the other points you make in the study is about the social structure as a result of this. It seems that there's more participatory and more opportunity to do different things rather than a caste system where you are here and you never get the opportunity to advance in life or society. That's a great point. Cities, especially Mesopotamian cities, are oftentimes marked by hierarchy. 
And hierarchy is essentially a relationship that is hierarchical. You have your uh, political elites, you have your bureaucrats, you have your priests in the temple, and then you have everybody else, people who essentially are peasants. Uh, and that's, that, that, that might be even be a generous characterization. What we see here in this kind of society is not hierarchy. It's something that's called heterarchy. And heterarchy is essentially social complexity that is not hierarchical, but is horizontal. So in, in a hierarchical social structure, uh, uh, one individual or set of individuals have all the power. And the power then trickles down essentially through, through generosity, for example. They will then trickle down some of the resources to everybody else uh, underneath them. In a, in a hierarchical social structure, uh, sources of power are counterpoised uh, horizontally. And what I mean is that and, – and the example of this, uh, this, this settlement in northwestern Iran is a perfect example of that. In one neighborhood, you have uh, individuals who are uh, engaging in textile production. In other places, it's, let's say, beet uh, production. In other places, they're working with cattle horn. Neither of these three areas is superior to the other one. All three of them are equal. They have a horizontal relationship. But one of them is producing something that the other one needs. And so they, have to, they actually have to come to an agreement, a social contract, so they can engage in a meaningful and constructive way. This is kind of the beginning of the supply chain in manufacturing, that you need something from somewhere else, and you have to bring it in, and you have to maybe do an exchange or a barter in order to do the same thing for them. Absolutely. If, if, you know, in present-day society, like, like, think about airplanes, for example. Uh, an airplane, uh, the, the engine might be produced, uh, let's say, in you know, upstate New York. Other parts of the manufacturing may take place in, let's say, Washington State. Other parts are produced overseas. Neither one of these parts of the production are, you know, have a hierarchical relationship to the other ones. Neither one is superior. All three are needed and have to work together. And so that's, that's evidence of a hierarchy. And that's actually a perfect example. Absolutely. What have we learned from this study of, the, of that area and, and at that time that we can build upon for a better understanding of that time of history and the development of society as it moved forward? I hope that the implications of this kind of study goes beyond the region that I'm interested in because actually my scholarship and, and that of my colleague who is the co-author is part of a, a broader movement uh, in, in archaeology. And that is that the history that we write, the story that we write about our past is not just defined by the rise of cities or states or civilizations. In these stories that we write, there are voices that are underrepresented. There are stories that are underrepresented or ignored altogether. They're ignored because they're not part of the story of the origins of cities and states. I became interested in archaeology because I read about these ancient cities and states. So there is validity, uh, and these are important questions. My hope is that we begin to balance the narrative that we write. We balance the stories that we write. For example, in the Middle East, most of which are mountain societies, we have these cultures, we have these ancient societies uh, that, yes, did not develop uh, early states, uh, did not uh, develop these elaborate systems of food distribution and food production and social stratification. But nevertheless, what they did was part of the bigger story. The, the crafts that these people produced, the beads, the jewelry, the textiles they produced, actually, no, through trade and through exchange, made possible other cultural developments in other regions and other time periods. And their contribution is just as important to the story of humanity as a contribution of the earliest cities and states. This fall, Siavish Sami will become a visiting assistant professor in sociology and anthropology at the College of Worcester 
in Ohio. So he's going to be moving on to a, a very good career as an archaeologist and zooarchaeologist. All right. Hey, I have a question for both of you. Uh, we all had, you know, favorite classes back in college, right? Mm-hmm. But did you ever have a class you liked so much you would flunk just to repeat it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Can't say that I did. You don't want to do that for your GPA, which, you know, some of us have to struggle with. <laughs> well, back in 1919, apparently at UConn, there was one class that was so popular, lots of people kept trying to flunk it just so they could keep doing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I bet you're going to tell us about it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, this is from an article in the Connecticut campus dated October the 24th, 1919, quite a year. Uh, the headline is, Girls Flunk Course for Love of It. Resort to Strategy in Order to Obtain Lowest Marks. So this class, was it was a, the housekeeping class, Practice Housekeeping, which was required of all women who were juniors at UConn. This is a very, uh, different, very different time, folks. Yeah. And uh, the story goes on to relate, last year, one of the girls, while serving a meal, accidentally dropped a spoon. This called forth a remark from the instructor, Miss Helen B. Barker, that waitresses who drop spoons would surely flunk the course. In the ensuing weeks, there followed a rain of spoons, forks, and knives, each girl endeavoring to deserve a flunking more than the one before her. But already this year, one of the waitresses has found a means more effective than silver in helping her obtain a low mark. Her plan, which she carried out to perfection, was, while serving the whipped cream-covered dessert, to let one of the servings slip from her grasp, to clutch at it frantically, catch it, drop it again, and finally land it, splash, on the gown of one of the innocent diners. Such, such is the devotion to practice house, but think of the wasted whipped cream. Did I send you that story? I, I've read this story. You may have. You may I have. think I did a long time ago when I was looking through the archives. That's amazing. And But, but why did they want to... Take it again. They must have liked it. Must have been a fun <laughs> class. You know what? Uh, you know when you get a when you get an instructor with the passion of a Miss Helen B. Barker, mm. you, you just want to keep going back to. Uh, yeah. To my, I guess, my, uh, my question would be: Didn't she understand what was going on? Why did she keep accepting people into the class? Uh, maybe she was just really. She just assumed everyone was really bad and was like, "God, of course these students are terrible at carrying spoons. They got to come back." <laughs> Maybe because they, you know, they were forced to like build rock walls and do hard manual labor in the rest of their classes. They just wanted to do some, some light waitressing. Yeah. For the yeah, day. I mean, th this was still a time when literally chicken plucking was a class at UConn. So when you oh. think about it, just kind of carrying spoons around and throwing whipped cream at people actually sounds kind of fun. <laughs> That's pretty like mischievous stuff going it on is. there. Yeah. Throwing the whipped cream on people. That's. Especially I don't know. I don't know why. Right? Why is there this like in ni the nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds? Everybody was prim and proper. I bet not. I just Probably think not. that's how we think of them. But that very also, interesting. That was also real whipped cream they were undoubtedly using. That was the good right, stuff. like good stuff. Yeah. yeah, wasted that good stuff. I wonder what else if this has ever happened again. But it just wasn't written about. I love that it was written about. Like, how did they get wind of this story? That's a good yeah, reporter. That is a good reporter. Well, try not to drop any spoons this week, kids. Yeah, if you are listening and you did purposely flunk a class to take it again um, for any reason, you know, feel free to get to us on Twitter. We're at UConn Podcast or at Main underscore old or even at TJ Breen. That's me. That's my personal Twitter. Mostly I just retweet articles from the mainstream press, but you never know. If, if, you, do have, uh, if you do have fun stories of classes that you flunked, maybe even not on purpose. Maybe, maybe you flunked because you weren't good at it. Just let us know. It's always happy to talk about people's experiences at UConn. 
Julie, is there anything you want people to know? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Uh, that's about it. Ken, how about you? Saturdays from 3 to 6 on 91.7 WHUS and stores UConn Sound Alternative the day after the rebroadcast of the UConn 360 podcast at 11 o'clock in the morning on Fridays. No, wait, we won an award. Oh, yeah. Did we? I already I already <laughs> forgot. Yeah, I know. Julie, what award did we win? Tell the, tell the people of listener land. We won a silver award in the Case Circle of Excellence National Awards, which is the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education, I believe, uh, I is so. the major organization that all kind of higher ed marketing and advancement people are part of. And we are super excited because this is not an easy thing to accomplish. And they had some very kind words about us and they liked our banter, the way we present multiple types of stories every episode. So um, what we're doing is working, I guess. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening as always. And uh, let's all meet back here in two weeks and do this all over again.